0: we really don't realize how much our seeing influences how we think and how we respond and in those moments all i could see with the dandelions in the yard were a nuisance that needed to be contended with and killed and on the trail all i could see was the the mud and the blood and uh, both of my kids in both instances saw something that i couldn't see and so To me, it was just saying, man, you know, there's so much about this life that I look at and I look at it through broken, fractured lenses. I look at it um, in distorted ways um, that really doesn't have my true heart at the center of it. And so to me, those were kind of pivotal moments in my life where I thought I need to change how I see those things around me. Not, Not speaking of, you know, the dandelion so much, but. Just how I'm seeing people and situations and circumstances.
1: Come and
2: make all, make all things new. Make all things new. Make all things new.
1: And I do not know about you, but I'm really getting tired of everybody just yelling at each other, constantly yelling, breaking each other apart, creating tribes amongst interior tribes until we're so far spread apart from each other that we cannot see each other. We certainly can't hear each other. There is intentional and unintentional trauma and pain, and it's breaking our churches, our country, our families, our planet apart literally causing destruction which is the opposite of shalom i'm seth your host this is the can i say this at church podcast what you can expect today in the episode is a conversation that i had with brandon andrus where we discuss what the kingdom of god what shalom what finding beauty in the wreckage of our world and that wreckage is self-imposed often and it's hurtful and it's painful and it's not necessary in an age that outrage is everywhere, in an age where animosity is rampant, in an age where we openly hate each other, I hope that we can hear these words. And so I'm gonna paraphrase the late Eugene Peterson from Matthew 11:28 28 through 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest, walk with me and work with me, Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And it's that last part. How do we keep company with God? How do we get away from the busyness of life, the cacophony of noise, and reconnect with a portion of us, the beautiful part of us, that part of us that used to see like a child? I don't know. But I do know it's worth working on. So here we go conversation with Brandon Andrews. Hope you enjoy. Andrews, thank you so much for coming on to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I was pleased, if I'm honest, I think a few months ago to get your email. And thank you so much for sending me your book. I'm excited to talk about that in a minute. But before I do, thank you again for making the time this evening uh, to come on to the show.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, whenever I listened to your podcast before I came on, I was like, this guy is the best radio voice ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> love listening to you talk good
1: stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. I'm a little bit threatened. So a few months ago when I recorded a few, like my voice was literally gone. And like, so I I talked and people haven't heard those yet. And by the time this comes out, they may have, but I I got a little (laughs) bit of like a, uh, is this what I sound like when I'm sick? But it didn't matter. You know, the the show must go on. But but I interviewed Brandon Robertson and Steve Austin, and both of them have voices that match mine in, in, in baritone.
2: Right, and and right. I'm a
1: little bit insecure about it. I don't know how to, I don't, <laughs> I'm not used to that. I, I'm a little insecure about it. So,
0: Oh, that's great. No, it's uh, great to be on and, and thank you for having me.
1: So tell me a bit about yourself. If I was explaining you to someone I go to church with or someone said, hey, Seth, who did you talk to last week? What would you want me to know or what would you want others to know about you?
0: Man, that's a crazy question. Just to start out I. I I knew that you would probably ask me that, and I'm not even quite sure who I am. So <laughs> my story's a, my story's a little bit strange. Um, you know, one of the ways that I can tell you at the beginning is that I was telling my wife this evening at supper. I said it's weird for me to hear that pastors are reading my book and my blog and my podcast because I'm not a pastor and I didn't go to seminary and I have no educational background in any of it. But we did, We were going to a church probably about uh, 10 to 12 years ago, and we'd been there for quite some time. And we really kind of felt like that we wanted to do something different and step out and start a new church. And so we did. And so, you know, for the last uh, – I've been out of it for a while, but for about seven or eight years, I was part of a very grassroots non – pastor staff led church and it was very organic it was in downtown columbus and so what's what's kind of funny about all of that is that i never really wanted to do any teaching or anything like that and all of a sudden i was kind of getting into this role of teaching and i did about four to six years of seminary training within nine months of reading (laughs) because i you know if you're going to do something you you really need to know what you believe yourself and Mm -hmm. i think I grew up with grew grew up in the church, and I really didn't know what I believed myself. So, anyway, a long story short is that through all of that process, um, I really started discovering some things and opening my eyes to a lot of things that I didn't know about um, my faith. And so, my deconstruction, you know, that's kind of the buzzword, was in two thousand seven, and went downhill from there. And then had been building up since then. So. <laughs> While some people are just coming to that place of deconstruction, mine happened quite a while ago, and I'm on the other side of that.
1: So I want to clarify. So when you say that you did nine months worth of reading to get seminary education, you're talking about just self-like, all right, I don't know anything about this, so I now need to have better answers. So you self-educated, or were you like taking classes?
0: No, no, I didn't take any classes. I I just started buying books and I mean there were a few books that really kind of set the trajectory of where I'm currently at. I always tell people there were two main books. One was Myth of a Christian Nation by Greg Boyd and I think he was on your podcast. Mm-hmm. And that one introduced me to the Kingdom of God of which I didn't know anything about at the time, but then that shattered every paradigm, everything in my mind, every thought that I thought that I ever believed was destroyed at that point. And then as if my foundation couldn't crumble anymore, I read, um, the kingdom of God is within you by Leo Tolstoy. And it was all over after
1: that. I haven't read that, but actually, so I've tried to read the myth of a Christian nation and I've told Greg this, it's, it's written a bit above my head. And and I use him as an example often that people are like, well, who will you talk to? I was like, well, I talked to a guy one time that as he could see me on the video, he said, Seth, I can see things coming out of your ears. Stay with me. I can see the brain coming out. Stay with me. <laughs> and I was like, I, you're going to have to explain it to me like I'm a kindergartner because that's what I need.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, honestly, I, I kind of, if, if anyone said, you know, who do you think you are? I would say. I'm a guy that understands Greg Boyd and understands Leo Tolstoy. But I feel like that I'm a guy way below that who I know all the people that I know will never read them. And so I feel like it's my job to take those paradigms and to make them understandable for other
1: people. So you've written three books now. And so if you're thinking about that where does your most recent beauty in the wreckage fit in to helping educate people about what your current views are?
0: Yeah. I mean, my obsession over the last decade has been the kingdom of God. And I think that there's just so much misunderstanding from Christians within the church on what that even is. I grew up understanding the kingdom of God as just being future heaven, you know, future distant heaven.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And You know, there's that verse in John. It's actually the title of the book that I just referenced, where um, Jesus says, "You know, you're you're looking for a kingdom over here. They'll say it's over there, but the kingdom of God is within you." And then you you start realizing that every time that He says the kingdom of God is like, He's referencing a reality that describes what we are to live presently, and it's it's certainly something that will be realized in the future. But we begin living in it, and actually uh, letting it work through our lives presently. And so kind of leading up to that, I I think that I've been frustrated over the years because even though I use the phrase kingdom of God, I still feel like that there's a lot of people that don't understand it. And kind of leading up to this book, you know, one of the, one of the frustrations is just like, I, I, I know that everything that I want to talk about, at its heart is about the kingdom of God. But I, I, I've, I finally acknowledged that we don't live in a time where there are kingdoms and that there are kings and there are, you know, there's not princes and princesses and queens. And so mm-hmm. this language is archaic and it's foreign to us. And so really, as I approached this book for the first time, I thought I'm going to introduce different language that gets at the heart of what it is, but something that's more relatable and understandable. And so the word that I actually pair with it is Shalom, which to me, Shalom is that, um, perfect relational, um, the perfect relationship between us and God that then we embody and extend into our relationships and then outward into the communities. And ultimately it's, you know, the completeness, harmony, um, um the completeness and harmony that we experience with ourselves and with other others and all creation. So you know, ultimately, that's in essence what the kingdom of God is. But I just wanted to introduce different language coming into this book. So that was a huge step forward, I think, for um, me expressing that.
1: So when you started talking about shalom, and I think it was in the introduction. Yes, I wrote like a hard line, like a double line, and my comment was, "I feel like shalom." is not even close to possible right now in America. Correct. But I don't know what, to, like it's, uh, like it's, it, I don't even know why we're fighting anymore. Like I don't, yeah. and because of that, I don't know how to sit with that. I mean, as we're, as we're recording this, it's like two weeks before the the elections um, on the 6th. And it's only going to intensify and then continue to intensify. And I don't see, Anything close to shalom, ever. No. So, wh- how do, what do I do with that? Like,
0: yeah, I mean, what what a state we're in, you know what? A, what a what an absolutely discouraging state that we are in. I don't know, man. I, I my my heart breaks, and one of the bigger problems that I've seen for at least the last decade, if not longer, is just how entrenched christians have become in that system you know kind of that binary system of this side's right this side's wrong and then the other side says the exact same thing and we've kind of bought into that narrative as the church and then unfortunately we've started acting almost identical um and and throwing our anger and hatred and vitriol and dividing against other people and so we've been large contributors to it and, you know and i think that there would be many who would point out that um you know evangelicals were overwhelmingly the ones who elected Donald Trump so introducing a book like this where you know the title is beauty in the wreckage finding peace in the age of outrage i think that the subtitle has really caught people's attention because i think that down deep i think that people intuitively know that this is not the way that we move forward we can't we can't move forward we're we're spiraling downward but I don't think that anyone knows what to do about it. And unfortunately, our churches are just continuing to contribute to the problem. And so, you know, I, I I want people to know that like right at the beginning of this conversation, this book is not a step-by-step manual to tell people how to fix themselves in the world. And this book is not a fill-in-the-blank sermon that's gonna, you know, tell you how to do all of this stuff. This book is birthed out of of my own personal experience and my own personal pain um, and what I've gone through personally. And so, you know, what what you're going to get with this book is not um, some deep theology or something that tries to, you know, sermonize or pick apart parts of the Bible to, you know, change things. What you're going to get with this is someone who's willing to walk with you vulnerably through it and say, Let's reevaluate how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we see our relationships, how we are currently um living with one another. And then is there a is there a way that we can begin living differently? And so it's a very, I, I would say it's more uh, it's less me standing in front of people with a billy club or a rope trying to pull people as much as, you know, I'm a part of this thing as well, and I just want to uh, lead gently.
1: So, when I tell people that, and I did it today, uh, you know, on Twitter, or I do it via email, I just get called a heretic because I don't want to buy into what, um, let's just say, mainstream Christianity, because I can't come up with a better metaphor at the moment. How does someone like myself, or it sounds like you, engage in the communities that we're in, enter into the wreckage that is all around us and the pain and the cynicism? And the um, the bigotry, and and actually be present in it without contributing, breaking more things into pieces and making more and more wreckage and more and more uh, what do they call it? Flotsam and in, in a boat wreckage. Like how right. how do I do that? Like if I'm a pastor listening, or if I'm not. Like my wife and I teach Sunday school, and uh, these middle schoolers ask us questions like this often. Like. What Mm -hmm. do we do about this? Or what are, what is, how does, you know, when we're talking about, you know, Jesus and, and that the gospel is written usually to people that are oppressed. Well, we're in America. What does that mean? And I, and I find myself never really to answer able to answer the question Mm -hmm. a, because I'm not their parent, but B because I'm afraid to do harm.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, these are the real issues that we face, unfortunately. And I, I, You know, I I think one of the things that I would be very quick to say is that the way that everything is being painted in the media is that, you know, your only response can be extreme on either side. And I think that because of that, we've lost really kind of an essential, essential humanity where we can't even see other people as human beings. And I think it's in chapter two of my book where I start talking about We've become so accustomed to labeling people and um, classifying other people, and automatically assuming that we know about them and you know their personality, their attributes, who they are at the very core, just by giving them a label that we really have dismissed their own humanity. and And I think that that's really kind of a call to. I mean and this is not even making it a spiritual discussion at this point is just calling people back to a really basic humanity of of getting to know people and you know I think that we've become so detached and so depersonalized from other people because we're on social media all the time where people don't even have you know hearts and feelings and children and relationships and we've we've just look, we look at them as another you know kind of depersonalized entity in cyberspace where all of a sudden we can rip them to shreds and man, I don't know. I I just, I kind of feel like that if my kids are coming to me saying, how do we do this better? If we are going to move forward, I would say we've got to get back at a very basic humanity where, you know, I, I remember watching, this isn't in the book, but I remember watching that show with uh, Morgan Spurlock. And I don't know if you remember, that when he did the thirty days with the fast McDonald's food, thing. yeah, so he did that, but then he did a television show in which he took people who were diametrically opposed from uh, with one another on specific issues, like really hardcore issues, things like one guy was uh, a border agent who was capturing people as they crossed, and he was so adamant against it and very you know vocal about it, and then he took people who had crossed over illegally and who were living here and he had them live together for 30 days. And the most shocking thing was that every, everything that each one of them presupposed about the other person began to break down over these 30 days to where they started becoming friends. And then all of a sudden their opinions about each other changed. And then all of a sudden they just saw the basic fundamental humanity of each other and by the end of it, both of them had changed their opinions of the other person just because they got to know the person. And I think not that my book is going into all of that, mm-hmm. but I'm just you're asking me a very difficult question about, you know, how do we get people? Because I, I think the cynic in me would just say, I don't know if some if many people even care. I don't, you know, and that's, I don't
1: think they do. I think the actions of the way that we treat people repetitively and uh and unintentionally like just at our nature
0: it, it, I, it is and I, here's yeah. here's here's my i hope maybe maybe this is the optimist in me is that i hope that the most aggressive um people are those who are at the far ends of either side of any issue mm-hmm. and that there is real that there that there are more people in the middle who are just like frustrated that they know that we can't continue on this way. And so maybe, you know, while I hope to change the hearts and minds of people on either extreme end, because I do pray for them and I want people's hearts to change towards one another, because we can't exist in a country where we are at each other's throats ready to kill, you know, and chant, you know, send them to jail or send them to prison or lock them up. We we can't live in a society where We are inciting violence and riots and mobs against one another. Um, But I I am speaking to the people right in the middle, too, of just saying no longer can we be sitting in the middle of all of this, just watching it passively, that we actually have to – and this would be the point of the book is to say – discovering shalom is something that's not a passive experience. It's a very active um, presence in the world. And so, you know, some people could very cynically look at my book and say, well, what are you saying? Are you just saying that we should sing Kumbaya and sit in the corner and be happy and, you know, feel (laughs) close to God? And it's like, well, I mean, certainly I think that we would go a long way to find our hearts once again. And I think that there are places where we can discover that through breathing as prayer when we find, uh, solitude and nature and just, you know, the small things of relationships. But at the same time, what we are getting from that, that shalom that we're finding is that which we take into the world at that point. And Mm. there's, there's ways to face issues in this world without taking more fire into it. And that would be the point.
1: I like the way that you throughout the book, um, and and I do this often, at least in this podcast, and I do it a lot in in-person in interactions, is I like to weave my family uh, into the story. And so yeah. you have done that at a great level. And there are two stories that speak to me. Um, so for, for almost everyone listening, except maybe my wife, uh, I was an Eagle Scout at, at a time. And so you tell a story about you and your son. I think he's four and you're going off. Uh, out into the wilderness and and uh, and just his expectation and just the beauty that he sees when, as adults, we've been reconditioned to see things in a different way. And you do a similar thing, I believe, with your daughter and with right. dandelions. And when I read that, it really spoke to me. I have a she just turned six, but I had a very similar experience where I, I wanted to remove them all, and she wants to pick them all and present them to me as a bouquet. <clears throat> Oh yeah, and so the tension is like when I read that, I was like, ah. So the, I'll tell you one thing, Brandon. One thing when I was reading your book is I couldn't read it in one sitting, um, yeah, because of the personal stories in it and and the relation to it. If, if that makes sense, it's...
0: No, it, it absolutely does. Yeah, When you um, talked
1: about it not being like a five-step plan or a sermon notes version of, you know, just say this on Sunday, it's absolutely that. Like You have to let it sit with you, um, which are, for me, the, the best books, but they're also the worst books, um, because <laughs> I don't really like to always challenge myself. Yeah, right.
0: Uh, so yeah, you're not the first person who said that. And I really appreciate it when people say that, because even at the end of every chapter, I put self-reflection questions. And so people can let it sit Mm -hmm. and think about it. And just, you know, I think part of it is just being very contemplative and thinking about ourselves and who we are and what we're doing. So, but you're exactly right. I have put more stories into this book than anything I've ever done. And, you know, my first book, when it came out, it was way more preachy i say uh, i'm kind of like isaiah walking down in the streets naked for three days yelling at people my second book was tongue-in-cheek it was (laughs) yeah or i'm just gonna i I, i'm not gonna say anything i had a a great follow-up but i'll just leave it there um my second book was way more tongue-in-cheek and People have said, you know, how is this book different than the other two? And I would say that this is the best expression of my heart. If people want to know, like, really what's in my heart, this is my heart. And so this book is deeply personal, you know. And obviously, with a lot of the stories that I put in, most of them um, with my kids being the central characters, um, me being kind of like the thick headed um, apostles. And my kids being the one teaching me the lesson, (laughs) which is kind of funny. But I'll tell you both of them really quick. Um, My son and I went backpacking, and he was four at the time. And the trail that we were on was just lined in mud. And on the side of each trail, it was just lined with thorn bushes. And so, you know, I don't feel like going on an overnight trip getting muddy or certainly like walking into thorn bushes bleeding. but. Um I was doing both. I my boat boots were caked with um with mud. My arm had blood and, uh, dripping from it and I was kind of looking at it and Will the entire time that he's walking down this trail not paying attention to the mud, not paying attention to the thorn bushes was just looking straight ahead and he was saying for goodness sake, this is so awesome. For heaven's sakes, this is so awesome. And I was just like, man, it, it it might have been one of the most poignant moments I've ever had in my life where I thought I have all this beauty around me and I have this, you know, amazing moment with my son and all I can see in the moment is the mud kicked on my boots and the blood running from my arm. Mm -hmm. And it hit me because I, and it's the same point that you brought out with my uh, daughter whenever I was talking about the dandelions is that we really don't realize how much our seeing influences how we think and how we respond. And in those moments, all I could see with the dandelions in the yard were a nuisance (laughs) that needed to be contended with and killed. And on the trail, all I could see was the, the mud and the blood. And uh, both of my kids in both instances saw something that I couldn't see. And so to me, it was just saying, man, you know, there's so much about this life that I look at. And I look at it through broken, fractured lenses. I look at it um, in distorted ways um, that really doesn't have my true heart at the center of it. And so to me, those were kind of pivotal moments in my life where I thought I need to change how I see those things around me not not speaking of you know the dandelion so much but yeah. just how I'm seeing pe- people and situations and circumstances
2: if I make my
1: So I live um, on the backside of the Blue Ridge Mountains, right where Skyline Drive starts. Oh, and nice. so my backyard yeah. is well, it hasn't yet because we get a lot of rain for some reason this year. But here, here soon it will, it will just bloom into every color imaginable, and it is beautiful, uh, and it's full of mosquitoes. But it is, it is also beautiful. <laughs> and so I find more and more, especially this year, as I've tried to intentionally slow down, usually late at night after the kids are at bed. Um, and i And I begin to pray and i 'm trying to take time um to self reflect that i'm i 'm seeing more and more beauty, but I have an advantage because I live next to some, and That's so true. how do the how do if I live like in the middle of Dallas or in the middle of Chicago, what would be some things that you could intentionally do to set yourself aside from the metropolis to look for and hear and see? And feel what I would call those you know those thin spaces where yeah. the divine can break through or to to borrow a phrase from Tupac the the, the rose grows up through the concrete <laughs> um, <laughs> right, so right how I, I can see how it's easy for someone in a rural area like myself where I can easily seclude myself but I don't mm-hmm. know that it would be as easy for my friends that live in bigger cities or uh, in, in a different line of work quote unquote that they just don't have the same time to set aside. To be intentional to look for beauty.
0: Yeah, it's a great point, and it's actually one that I made in the book um, because a lot of the examples that I use have to do with back, that. I use have to do with backpacking. Um, you know, I I'm fortunate enough, and I love to go backpacking, and I've been to some amazing places throughout the United States and Canada. And you know, I've had those real um, surreal. Um, Moments where I'm in just solitude where I'm just kind of Finding my breath again, but also seeing the beauty of it and I think you know It it doesn't take a person having to go to Alaska to find that or to find respite in Moab, Utah or you know on the John Muir trail in California at the top of Mount Whitney I, I think about those experiences that we have, that we all have as shared experiences. And, you know, maybe it is as subtle as just going into the family room with a loved one, a brother or a sister or your mom or dad or your grandparent and just holding their hand or, you know, just finding a tree to just lean up against and just watch the ants work and just watch the wind blow the the leaves. Um, You know, maybe it's sitting outside on the patio or the stoop or the stairs and just watching people as they go by and just seeing the beauty of each person. And, you know, I think that it's what we create. Um, we all have those places that we you know, e- even with my job, I'm in my car all the time. And uh, just the other day I was kind of locked into figuring out like, am I going to listen to a podcast on my commute? Am I going to listen to some more music on my commute? And I looked up And I saw like this beautiful morning sunrise and all of the um, kind of fog just hanging up close to the ground and the way that it was shining through the trees. And I just stopped for that moment and just, just took it in and appreciated it. So, you know, I don't think that it takes a person having to necessarily live in rural areas or live in the Blue Ridge Mountains or, you know, have those special places that you go to as much as having the eyes to see the the beauty that is around us already. We did this one thing a few years ago. I I didn't do it. It was uh, something that somebody else set up and he he gave each one of us cameras. And I'm not saying that people need to do this. It's just going to make a point, but he gave each of us cameras and he said, we're going to go out and just walk through downtown and just take pictures of beauty that you find in the ordinary. And I mean, we were finding the, you know, the grass breaking through the cracks. We were fine. We were finding like, I had this picture of uh, a popsicle that had melted where the stick was still on the ground and just the shape of what had melted was there. And I took a picture of it or this little, uh, uh, circle in the middle of the pavement where it had like this perfect uh, green. It wasn't even grass. It was like this really neat green right in the middle of the road. And I took a picture of it. And I thought the things that we pass by every day that we don't even pay attention to. You know, the the smile from your wife, holding your um, your friend's hand while they uh, take chemotherapy. I mean, it's it's the hugs that we share with one another. So, yeah, man, it's. <laughs> It's not the exception, you know, it's the rule. I think that it's there for us all the time if we have, um, if we're there for it.
1: Yeah. You talk and, and, and I like this so much so that I put it on Facebook tonight, so I'm sure you've already read this, but you speak in your book about what you call the relational disconnection from God, um, and that that is the beginning point of every lie. And, and one of my favorite episodes that I've done of this one is of, of this show is with my pastor. And we talked about the concept of ego and soul child and some of the work from Henry Nowen and other work on that, you know, the powers, a path of oppression and and whatnot. Sure. And, and we talked about pain and trauma and how we shelter ourselves. And we try to to create this facade that that becomes us, but it isn't really us. And, sure. and and I hadn't really heard anybody say that except for my pastor, um, aside from like Henry Nowen and, and that kind of <sighs> stuff. So mm-hmm. what are you getting at when you say relational disconnection from God? Because I feel like if I can find a way to look for beauty, it's going to make me confront whatever that disconnection is. And yeah. so what do you get? How do those two interplay?
0: Yeah. So I mean first off my, my background is psychology. So I kind of tap into that a little bit, but you know, one of the really funny things I, I did see you post that and I I was surprised that I wrote that because it sounded really good. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, man, I don't, did, I didn't know I was capable of writing something like that. I, I honestly forgotten a lot of the stuff that I've written in the book. but <laughs> <laughs> I triple checked.
1: I wanted to make sure you weren't quoting someone else. And I was like, "Nope, yeah. this is him. So here we go. Yeah,
0: yeah. Now, so one of the things that was going on in the back of my mind at that time is that everybody likes to throw, or, and, and, and you'll see that I've done this several times throughout the book with different churchy type words. But one of the words that has just been abused forever is the word sin and really what i'm getting at with that is sin because you know i kind of spell it out in that chap in that chapter is just talking about like 80 75 to 80% of the time that we see the word sin used in the new testament it is a noun and it's more of a position rather than you know everybody always thinks of sin as being these little naughty deeds that you do like the verb actions of it but the truth of it is is that sin in its most basic form is a position where we stand in relationship to God. So it's it's people have made it like this horrible word that we've thrown around, and I, I don't want to downplay it, but I also want to say that there's a real relational element to it. And so the way that I see it is that there's a relational disconnection between us and God. And if God is life, and if we are choosing to walk away from life. And if there's a relational fracture or break, then we are walking away from life. And to me, it seems like that in that place is where we find all of our brokenness, all of our darkness, all of our, all of our waywardness. So that's really what I was getting at is just, I was using different language, um, to kind of re understand sin, honestly.
1: So, can you talk more what do you mean when you say positional? Something about that still isn't clicking for me. Like when I yeah. and you just alluded to it, but when I hear sin I think uh you know you're living in sin or I'm intentionally doing something. And so yeah. specifically what do you mean positionally? Like if you were to if you were to explain that to my 6-year-old, how would you explain yeah. that?
0: Well, I I I'll, I'll say this first part, which I wouldn't say to your 6-year-old, is that the Greek <laughs> word that they used for used for sin is harmartia, which is a noun. Okay? So Kind of at the very beginning, it's telling us, it's giving us this idea that it's a noun. And then what the word means, and this is what I would say to your six-year-old, it's whenever you are shooting an arrow at the bullseye and the arrow is off target. It's in a relational position that's off where it should be. It's not um, in line with it. So really, whenever I talk about a relac- relational disconnection, it's it's the place that we find ourselves when we have um, strayed from life, when we've strayed from life and the divine.
1: And so, to stretch that metaphor, if I'm shooting an arrow, and that arrow would be would be me and my heart and in my intention, um, and and how I treat others in this world, I think, it, it, am I moving? Am I changing my aim or? Is God moving the target?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, you know, I, I would say that any time that we choose um, non-love, any time that we choose non-life, um, those are the positions. I don't think that those ever move. If, if God's very essence, character, nature is love and life to the fullest, um, I, I don't think that there's a whole lot of movement on God's end away from us in that it's like, God is fully immersing us and holding us and surrounding us in his love and goodness. And I think that whenever we stray away from that, whenever we choose non-life, um, you know, it's the the easiest way to understand it is kind of like what I wrote. Um, we, we actually begin believing that. Uh, we are the source of that life, which can become very prideful and very disconnected. And it can become a place where we start feeding into the false self and mm-hmm. running away from our true, true divine self.
1: No, I like that. And I like that metaphor. Actually, I, I'm going to, well, luckily I ha- I'm recording this, so I'm going to write that down and, and, and use it again. <laughs> you have, and I think it's, I don't believe it's a chapter. I think it's a sub chapter, but you talk about repentance and you frame it in a way that uh, most people listening to this, most in the English-speaking word, think of repentance like a tent revival, hellfire and brimstone, you know, repent and turn away from what you're doing. But then you break down that we don't really translate the Greek word, and I'm going to say it wrong, so I'm not even going to try to say it, not not very well in English, and that we need to rethink the way that we posture ourselves to repentance. Can you go into that a bit?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, I I need to kind of uh, balance it by saying that I don't want people to be worried that this book is a theology book, because it's definitely not. Um, I spend just a little bit of time in one of the chapters going into some of this because of the story that set all of it up, talking about an experience within the church um, where I heard a specific speaker talk and so i start getting into some of these words that we that's invaded our collective psyche that have really um that haven't served us well in the way that we understand them and so what i've done is really just try to go back to the heart of and in the essence of what the words are to help us kind of re-understand and reorient around them so one of the words is repentance which you know, 99% of the people listening to this probably would say, "Yeah, I mean, that—that's a word that means to turn 180 degrees around, to turn away from sin, to whatever." I mean, I, I grew up in that as well. The Greek word is metanoia, and what we find with metanoia, which <laughs> later in the book I, I go into describe it even more of how within um, the Greek world they would have understood this word and some of their um their stories that they would have had at the time is that metanoia actually means to um to be transformed and to you know it's kind of not so much a light switch turning off and on but it's this gradual slow progression that's happening over time and it's not you know something where all of a sudden because we've had this idea that you know well once you turn the switch then you have to be gods and you have to be changed and you have to be and it's like well I'm not sure that that's necessarily what the word repentance is getting at. Is that there is a lifelong process of of shedding off the old and becoming new. And I think that that's really true, more true to the heart of it. Because what does Paul say? He says um, he talks about the renewing of our minds. And I think that it's a process and it's something that's going on rather than something that happened at one point in time where. Hey, did it take or not should I get rebaptized? Do I need to say the good words again, <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> for the 87th time?
0: <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. So, I want to I want to bring our conversation to a close with a specific call and and maybe some best practices. And so, if I'm able to set find a place to set aside time um to look for beauty intentionally in this a horrible mess of whatever country it is that you happen to live in. I think they're all in a similar space except for, you know, maybe someone that doesn't have the internet yet, which they're winning. Um, So how do we, how do we recognize and how do we hear? And most importantly for me, how would you say uh, that we should document and record experiences that we see beauty to be able to reflect back on Uh, because one of the things I'm, I'm I'm worried about is and I would call that like a mystical experience and I have no issues saying that, even though I know many Mm -hmm. in the church would, would would take issues with, with using that verbiage uh, for different reasons. Um, I don't believe they're listening to this show, but I know many would say that. And, and when I retell and I relive mystical experiences, if I'm not careful, I alter them and I change them. And so Mm -hmm. I've, How would I, you know, what do we do to look for those specifically? And then how do we make sure that we record them and preserve them in a way that they can impact us for years to come?
0: Yeah, I mean, some of it's going to be really practical. And I think that some of it you stumble into. Um, And Jesus always said, for those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, whenever he was referencing the kingdom of God. And I, I really think that that's true. I mean, there are practical things that people can do, but then other times, You just have to have to have the eyes to see it. I was sitting on my couch um, many years ago. And at the time, I just had my two daughters. And one was seven, one was four. So that would have been about 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And I was suffering from severe body pain, which I've dealt with for the last 19 years. And I was post-supper. My wife's cleaning up the kitchen. My dog is going crazy barking. My daughters are uh, playing very... Screechily, loudly, um, in the fa- <laughs> yeah, in the family relate. room, and it was the kind of playing that just grates on a parent's nerves. And you know, I had all those kind of right there at that moment, and I just remember putting my head back on the couch and. I just started crying and I thought this is the most beautiful experience that I could ever imagine. And, you know, I've got my kids right here with me. I have my dog, um, with me running around like, like a wild animal and, you know, it was a really surreal moment. And I had another, I don't know if I put this one in the book, but I had another experience where I was in, um, Denali in Alaska And we'd been backpacking all day and it was pouring rain, 45 degrees, just horizontal winds, nowhere to duck into to take a break or get respite. I sit down and um, just sat in the rain and ate my snack in the cold. And uh, one of the guys looked at me and I said, you know what, on a scale from one to ten of this being the absolute worst experience ever or an absolute greatest moment ever being a ten, I said, this is, and I think everybody's waiting for me to say a one. And I said, this is an 11 because you could be working right now. And, you know, again, it's like I was in Alaska, but it was the perspective. And whenever you talk about that, I mean, there are practical ways that people can enter into it by having some really, um, and I don't discuss any real practical things, I don't think, in the book. But having discipline in those areas of finding respite or, you know, finding Jesus was very good about Even when he was busy, even when people needed him around, he ducked out just to find space to pray and to breathe. And so I think that there's some practical things there. You know, whenever you talk about documentation, man, journaling would be huge. I think sharing your experiences with your close friends just so people can hear where you're going and what you're experiencing is huge. I have my phone that I took with me to... Uh, on one of the trips and on the microphone, I would just talk into it and just talk about like what I'm feeling, and what I'm thinking, what I'm experiencing, what I'm learning. So I think that there are practical ways now, on the other side of it. You know, I really wholeheartedly believe that despite our circumstance, despite our situation, no matter how good, how bad, how painful, how beautiful that there is a deep well of God's goodness that we can tap into That supersedes and transcends every circumstance that we're in, where we can find the resident goodness of God in all things. And it's something that doesn't make sense. It's something that defies all logic, defies all convention, but it 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 is there in that moment. Well, even whenever you least expect it, it can be right there in the most broken, heartbreaking moment. And, and of course, I have stories of that in the book about mm-hmm. where that's happened. But I say, I don't want people to think that it's simply, well, you know, if I change a few things about what I'm doing, then I'm on the track to have everything right. And I think that there are disciplines that we enter into. But at the same time, I think that there is a deep well of God's goodness through the spirit that can teach us and show us how to um, exist within this terrible tension at times. They can give us a peace that surpasses all understanding, even when everything around us is wrecking and breaking and hurting and sad and angry that we can have peace in that moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or as as you as you say earlier on in your book, that we can have peace and have it abundantly or, or have life and have it to the fullest. Yeah. Um that's right. It's very good. Well Brandon, where can people well obviously the books on Amazon, uh where do they engage with you though?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of spots. One is easy, one is brandonandrus.com. That's my blog Um, The one that points directly to the book where you can get free sample chapters, where you can get uh, the promotional videos there, the the places where the books for sale is beautyandthereckage.com. So that would be an easy place. If people want to check out my podcast, it's outside the walls where fine podcasts are delivered, distributed, whatever you say. (laughs)
1: I've never quite come up with a good way to say where to find it. I usually just say it's on the internet. You'll, you'll, it's, it's you'll you'll stumble on it somewhere. Yeah. It's, it's, you'd have to try not to find it if, if you were looking for it.
0: Yeah. One thing I will say, and I don't know when this is going out, but Amazon actually ran out of my book and that is encouraging, but it also says that it's going to be one to two months. I think it's going to be much sooner than that, but. You know, don't fret. You can get the ebook for 99 cents and also order a physical copy to come in later.
1: I saw that. (laughs) Actually, I intended to ask you that, but I am curious now. Because after you talk to someone for an hour, you feel like you know them a bit. But I know that as of recording on October 15th, 16th, whatever day it is here, at least for today, you you were superseding Joel Olstein, And a part of me (laughs) likes that because he blocked me on Twitter because I've called him out for proof texting. Oh, man. So a part of me likes that. But how do you feel about currently outselling Joel Olstein?
0: Well... To me, I don't really care about the rankings so much, but I will tell you this is that whenever you look at the rankings and you see all of the people who are typically at the top, um, and we'll just use him as the example, you know, I think that there is, I'm going to say it a different way. I, I think I'm praying that there's a hunger for more substance. I'm, I'm praying that there are people that, break beyond the circumference break beyond the edges and are hungry to get into something deeper. That's that, that deals. I'm not going to say that he doesn't deal with real life, but it's certainly one element of real life that is maybe skewed one direction. And at least from my book, you know, making the pitch for it is saying I do not run away from the heartache. I don't run away from the pain and the suffering or the division and conflict. I don't even dismiss it. I take it on full on, and and I walk people through it. and And so, for me, what I see are people who are starved for a message like that. and And I really feel like that the more people that pick it up and kind of read through it, will say, you know what, I've I've felt that, or I've experienced. I, that's what I'm hearing from people more times, even in parts that I didn't think that people would resonate with that much. That's those are the parts that people are sending to me mm-hmm. saying. No, that's where I'm at right now. That's exactly where I sat at the kitchen table. And I looked out the window and I thought, what am I doing with my life? And so I think that, you know, we've spent so much time on the cosmetics of, you know, even within the churches of just going through the motions or standing on the edges or being super superficial that people are just hungry for depth and honesty and vulnerability above all things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Brandon, thank you again so much for your time this evening. I enjoyed it I enjoyed it tremendously
0: yeah me too I hope we can do it again and uh, I am so honored just to be on here so thank you the
2: only one who can satisfy me silver and gold are trying to silence
1: Imagine what it would look like if we took the time to slow down intentionally, myself included. I am the worst, probably, person in the world at that. A lot of that is self-imposed. I tend to not have the ability to say no sometimes. But I've been challenged by so many authors and theologians and just conversations this year to, to make space for something holy, to make space for something beautiful, and to not be afraid to let things break and as Brandon would argue there's beauty in that I know as Alexander Shia would argue if we allow Christ God the divine to hold us back together that breaking when we become whole again is more beautiful than before but we may not be the same and we have to learn to be okay with that a very special thank you to the wind talkers for the use of their music in today's episode You'll find links to hear their music and engage with them on social media in the show notes, as well as those tracks will be listed on the Can I Say This at Church Spotify playlist. Remember to rate and review the show. Thousands of you listen weekly. Hundreds of you review. Let's make those numbers match. Anyway, regardless of whether or not you do, I appreciate each and every one of you, and I'll talk to you next week.
2: Heal my eyes to see All of these lies Are trying to